I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Simon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? How did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Minds at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 29, we read From Cottage to Workstation by Alan Carlson from 1993. Alan, Alan Carlson was born in 1949 in Des Moines, Iowa. He received a BA from Augustana College in Illinois in 1971 and earned his PhD in modern European history from Ohio University in 1978. He became a lecturer in history at Gettysburg College the following year and in 1981 became the executive vice president of the Roquefort Institute and editor of Persuasion at Work. By 1986, he was president of the Institute and two years later, President Ronald Reagan appointed Carlson to the National Commission on Children. That same year, Carlson published the first of his 11 books, Family Questions, Reflections on the American Social Crisis. Several more followed, all addressing a similar theme, including today's reading, From Cottage to Workstation in 1993. Meanwhile, in 1997, Carlson founded the Howard Center for Family, Religion, and Society and became its first president. In 2003, he served on the faculty of Oriel College at Oxford University. Carlson's research is focused on the changing dynamics of family and on population decline in advanced democracies. Since 2008, he's been a professor at Hillsdale College and is also the series editor of the Marriage and Family Studies series of books. All right. So as Kyle said, this book here tells the story of the family in modern history and how the family has gone from a bedrock assumption throughout all of human history to an institution under siege. And in this book, Carlson will walk us through the challenges and identify causal factors for uh, the degradation of the family, most, most prominently industrialization. He starts with these baseline premises. Number one, that the family is the natural, universal, and irreplaceable human community. Two, that it ties the living to the legacy of the past and gives them a proper consciousness of the future, which is, you know, sort of echoes of Evan Burke, and that it is out of the reciprocal family or reciprocal life of the family that broader communities grow. So that would be tribes, villages, peoples, nations, cities, states, and that sort of thing. He argues that the U.S. was founded as a pre-modern nation on the assumption that autonomous households rooted in land and lineage would be the social and economic base of national life. Uh, the social effect of industrialization, that's the main culprit, although he has some, there are others, some other harmful factors, but industrialization is really what he points to and we'll talk about today, particularly the divorce of uh, labor from the home, he says, has been the defining factor in American domestic life. For most of the 20th century, Americans have continued to experiment with strategies, he says, to heal this basic breach. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting thesis and the, the idea that that work was primarily something people did at home for centuries millennia even it it makes sense I, I never thought of it that way until i read the book but it's true i mean so, i mean you knew most people historically were some court, some sort of farmer 
you know, back before there was as much action in cities and industry and what, and that's, that's a home activity. People live there and, you know, kids will help out husband and wife are both doing things. But it was, it was kind of interesting to think of that because we have talked a few times on this, on this podcast about the state of the family. We talked in uh, Charles Murray's book about degradation of family structure and how that affects people. But the idea of tying it to work is a new concept for me, but I think it makes some sense. I mean, families had to be strong in those pre-industrial days because that's all there was. Mm -hmm. You you had a king somewhere maybe, or, you know, here we eventually had a republic, but how much did you ever deal with them? How much did you ever leave your, your county, you know, I mean, let alone your property. So, I mean, there was, there were governments, but what really governed your life was your family, you know, and more specifically your, your, your father or your grandfather, whoever was running the family land and the family household. So it's a interesting, definitely Burkean, as you said, um, he talked about how every, every cultural affinity we have, you know, for tribe for state for country all grow out of that family dynamic. And that it's sort of a, just an expansion of that idea, you know, of, of the family. And that's, I think that's something Burke talked about with his platoons and, and such. Then that seems true. I mean, you know, we learn, we learn how to be a part of a unit in our household as we're growing up. And if we learn it right, we can maybe transfer that to something bigger. And if you learn it wrong, then maybe your relationships with those bigger things are also going to be strained. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, some good points there and, and packaged in a way I hadn't thought of before. Now, same here. I mean, he sets the stage with a description of the historical family, which I guess, you know, we kind of already knew, but not hadn't, uh, hadn't been laid down in my mind, at least in these terms. So he says, uh, for over, over a millennium household householding had been the dominant economic pattern Residents and workplace were normally one and the same. This is what you were mentioning. Wives and children stood beside husbands and fathers as co-workers in the family enterprise with no debate over issues of work and dependency. In other words, like we're just trying to survive day to day. So Mm -hmm. we're not going to step back and, and complain to each other about, you know, who gets what duty or whatever. I mean, I'm sure the kids do like our, like my kids complain about who gets, which dish duty on loading <laughs> right. or loading. But, but I mean, as far as like husbands and wives, it's like, we just got to get this done. We don't have time to. Yeah. it's like, yeah. this is how it works. Everybody yeah. does it this way because I mean, and that's also like, it's not even to say that this was an idea people came up with. Oh, let's all work in our, our homes. I think it was just, that's how it was. It's the only thing people knew. Yeah. So yeah. It, it reflects that's... our human nature, but it also is kind of uh, inevitable at least in pre-modern mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he calls this the universe universality of the family. And I, I liked this little part because I think in the, at least in the culture wars about family, you know, there's this broader argument of why should we preference family over, or at least the nuclear was now called nuclear family over other formations. And, you know, it can lead to sort of a, you know, because that's how God ordained it. And, you know, then the other side would say, I don't believe in God or certainly not yours. And, you know, my God is just ha- is happy with every lifestyle as he, as he is about 
you know, your particular lifestyle. But here Carlson says it it could be that, and and you know, many people will believe that the human social life is ordained by God, and that's why we have families. But it's also the case that it could be, and a lot of people could see scientists see that you know, it's just human biology kind of found in our DNA because. I mean, social science research has been validated in showing that, first of all, fa- family is the anthropological norm, he says, th- you know, throughout civilization. And as we've said in other podcasts, kind of the research has come in to show that that traces that uh, specific social disorders are common, have a, have a common source in the breakdown of the family, he says. So that divergences from this nuclear family order really is a following away from the universal model and it's universal not because of social construction it's not universal because of power and the you know the will of the strong over the weak jordan peterson makes this point that i have always found fascinating because it's it kind of pushes you back and he said you know throughout human history women have been much more sidelined but you know because they had they literally had to rely on a husband to survive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's, that's how we kind of evolved is that, you know, women have children and they need, they need a protector and they need somebody who's also going to help them be a partner, a major partner in, in gathering food and, and, you know, planting the crops and that sort of thing. Yeah. And you can, I mean, you could see even animals have a sort of family because they, I mean, not in the real sense that we do where they think about it, but, you know, a mother has to bear young and raise them in the animal kingdom, just like we do. And, you know, the fact, yeah, children can't raise themselves. So right there, you've got this natural impetus for the household. You know, somebody's got to protect them. And yeah, after, and if the, the woman has devoted so much of her energy to having kids, nursing them and, and bringing them up, then obviously you need somebody else to bring in the food it, it just it, it's the sort of thing we talked about as a universal it's really yeah it's not just a western universal everywhere in the world you go there's families and it's not it's not an artifact of capitalism or culture i think it's just a, a biological necessity that develops into a cultural necessity a cultural norm so that's a good point because yeah what you talk about why do we have families and you know is it is it religious based and obviously our, our our Judeo-Christian heritage has certain rules about families and things about, you know, things are codified and honor the mother and father and all these things, but that's, they didn't invent it. They just sort of Mm -hmm. made rules around it. People were already living in families before, you know, Abraham or anybody else started uh, living under it as a religion. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's, um, that's, it, as I say, it sounds very obvious. Of course, families are everywhere, you know, but uh, the way he puts it makes you really think, yeah, this is that that is true. And it makes it really more important to say, yes, we have individual rights in a, in a Western culture, Western society. But this family unit is not it's different than any other unit. Yeah, if it's the, the constant expectation, like he says, the constant expectation for all humanity, past, present, and future, they never really even imagined what you know society would look like outside of your your family, your clan, because that's how you got your food. I mean, you can't rely on the neighbors 
that sort of thing. And I want to go back to your capitalism point because, you know, this argument is constantly made that, that it's, it's uh, families are social constructs that are really are an outgrowth of capitalist society. He, he turns that on its head because he says industrialization is what has torn asunder family life. That's the major sea change in social history is moving from the farms to the factories. That's what changed everything. Mm -hmm. Changed that family units had to reorganize from this uh, home and, you know, the central, you know, economic pattern of daily life to, well, now this is a place for shared shelter. And he says shared consumption. He says cooperative family changed into a collection of individuals in competition. But, you know, suddenly like living at the home is just, that's your, that's where you, you know, live together. And you kind of, it's almost like a, a, uh, a co-op where you can share space. Yeah. And then in the morning you leave to your job, the kids would too also go work in factories, but change that. That's a major change from the, you know, the first millenniums, several millennia of, you know, we're going to, we're going to go out and we're going to gather berries together. And I am, you know, the husband's going to, or the, you know, the father's going to go hunt and mom's going to nurse the baby and, and we're just going to, we're going to keep pumping out kids because we need more helpers. Yep. And it's not like we have all these hired hands that are walking around and I have all this money, you know, that's it's basically like we need more people in this enterprise so we can survive. And particularly when we get old, you know, what's going to happen. Well, we need somebody to take care of us. It's, um, yeah, it's really, uh, we talk about the industrial revolution a lot when you read history, but it, Looking at it this way, it's really, it drives home what a big change that was. You know, I mean, we think of it as like new kinds of work, new kinds of products, you know, people are moving to cities. There are railroads coming, you know, things like that. And that's, those are all big things, you know, alone. But then just, when you look at it this way, it says this, this changes how families relate to each other, you know, in a way that hasn't changed in, in human history. And then as these things are going, it's like, yeah, well, now everyone's kind of controlling his own labor a little bit. You know, I mean, the adult son might still live at home, but he's not working under the father on the farm. He's saying, well, look, they opened this shoe factory up the road. They're paying good mm -hmm. wages. I'm going to go there. And once that work connection severed, it also, I mean, it necessarily severs some of the parental authority. Because, you know, now you disagree with the old man about how you want to live you say well what the hell is i'm gonna go get my own place i'm gonna move yeah mm -hmm. i'm gonna move to to manchester or london or what have you and get you know there's factories there they're paying good wages for guys with a strong back i'm gonna work there and i'm gonna make my own way and i don't have to listen to you which is again never before in human history has it been that easy to leave leave the family unit leave the tribe and, you know, go off in your own direction. I mean, it's necessarily an advance to individualism to have these, to have options. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he really, make, Carlson makes a great, his thesis is really fascinating. Just how much, I mean, how much individualism would we have in the world if we were all still yeoman farmers, you know, barely above subsistence? Well, and it's, you know, these are counter veiling factors too, right? Cause you're like, on the one hand, I think we'd probably both agree that this is a good thing that yeah, <laughs> that it you is. can have some independence 
and it, it also allows for you know industrialization and bringing more people into the labor force has has provided for a much more vibrant economy and more choices, more freedom, um, more uh, you know economic liberty, which is all fantastic. And as I've said many times, like, I just feel so lucky or blessed, whatever you want to call it, to be born in this era of the world. Mm-hmm. Not not because of Facebook, but just because I, I actually can pursue a career and kind of a lifestyle that suits me and my abilities and my skills and my interests versus, you know, 200 years ago, um, 500 years ago, a thousand years ago. I mean, your life is pretty well set. I, I think I, I can do better in a, in an economy where I can become a lawyer, let's say, versus, you know, ha- an, an economy where I just have to spend my life farming and sowing crops. And <laughs> mm-hmm. that just doesn't sound too thrilling. And I, I am confident that many, 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 many other people would be so much better at it. So I feel like we're super lucky. And, and so many of the factors that is degree that he's, that he's speaking to like industrialization and market economy and bringing uh, other folks into the labor force. These are good things, but they're just, I think he's pointing correctly to the, the downsides and the pitfalls, you know, for you have this, the, he goes in chapter one, he goes through some of the major characteristics of the societal order throughout history with the, and we should probably talk about a few of these, the primacy of the family economy, focus on land, abundance of children, intergenerational bonds, parents, as we talked about, parents consider children, both dependents and workers, mm-hmm. men and women perform different though complementary tasks. He says, all of which were necessary for the survival of the family unit. And you think about this, you're like, yeah, I mean, no better way to keep a family close together than the, uh, overriding need to rely on one another every single day, you know, in order to survive. It's not just, Hey, if we don't get, if you guys don't get the lawn mode, then we're not going to give you screen time today. <laughs> no, it's, right. it's like, if somebody doesn't go out and pick the berries, we are going to starve today. And you know, that's, yeah, and so get out you're, there. You're right. Just about, I mean, I don't think anybody listening to this podcast on our phones or computers is going to say, we don't like the industrial revolution, right? I mean, we, there is so much good that has come out of advancement and part of its specialization. Like you talked about everything used to happen in the home, which meant everybody in the home had to be good at everything, mm-hmm. you know? So specialization means that kids can go to a school where they can learn more than their parents know. That's great. Otherwise, how are you going to increase knowledge really, if, if, except by discovering things yourself, you know, which is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. never easy. Most people can't do that. And then, you know, yeah, you can, you and I can go out and have jobs, that aren't, you know, that we're, that we're better at. And then somebody who's better at growing food can do that because he knows how to do it better. So these are all great things. I think it's important. And part of what makes this a conservative book is that Carl recognizes what we've seen. I think we talked about it in the soul episode is that nothing is without consequence. Everything has Mm trade-offs. And that's a, that's one of the things that on the left, you often don't want to hear. They, you know, well, We'll change this part of society. It'll be better. Okay, but what what are the knock on effects of that? How's it? What's it going to disrupt? Nothing. Mm-hmm. It's going to be great. Yeah, we're yeah. going to just fix everything that's bad, and nothing new bad will come out of that. And mm-hmm. on the conservative side, we we tend it's almost 
sort of a pessimism, but it's, it's a realism. It's like something bad always happens. You know, I mean, even if the thing you're saying, like like here, industrialization and sort of individualizing of the family unit, a lot of great things come out of it. But it, yeah, we have to we have to be honest with ourselves that such a massive change in the way humans have lived is bound to have some negative consequences. Mm-hmm. And it's a, the whole book is different ways that we have tried throughout history, mostly specifically throughout American history of trying to replace that, trying to replace that family labor unit. You know, what's going to keep us together if this doesn't, and he goes, right. each chapter is a different one and we don't have time to go through them all in this podcast, but it really, uh, it's an interesting way of looking at history because yeah, all along the way we're seeing this problem. So, well, religion can fix it. Nationalism can fix it. All these different things. Yeah. None of them is a true substitute, although, I mean, I think some are more successful than others. Well, and he paints this picture of we're trying to survive day to day. And then, so then the focus for parents is, he says, parents raise children to succeed them and not merely to succeed because the overriding concern, he says, was was preserving the family land and sort of the post, you know, the posterity, the, the, the land, our ownership that we basically share together. It's a common ownership and we need to make sure that it's preserved for the future generations of our family. So, you know, the main concern of fathers, he says, was to see their sons settled on the land and because, you know, most farms, he says, produced enough to feed the residents of the family, but with maybe a little bit to barter um, above that, but not much, you know, so basically like trying to get economic gain or, you know, get a better career or a more fulfilling career. You know, mm-hmm. this is not the focus. The focus is like, we need to survive and I need to make sure I need to do everything I can to make sure that my, my sons, my kids, you know, take care of one another and that this land is preserved from, for the, you know, future generations of our family. And so I, I thought this line was, this little fa- uh, factoid was really interesting along those lines. He says, the young were relatively powerless. The old used elaborate methods of gifts and bequests to bind their children to them. And I'm like, wow, that's really interesting because, you know, uh, you know, in this day and age, I, you know, there's some of that too. It's like, you know, if, if you're not going to do such and such, then I'm not going to, you know, pay for your car, or pay for your insurance or something mm-hmm. like that. But this is a whole nother level to say, like, you owe your entire existence to me, boy. <laughs> Not just yeah. because we brought you into the world, but because this land is all we've got. And you are not going to survive if you don't have this land. And we're going to, you know, so so they go through these, he says, elaborate methods in order to bind the children to them, to the land. You know, that's your that's your heritage. That's your future. You know, your ancestors to me, it just really kind of opened up that, you know, illustrates what, you know, Burke had in mind when he's talking about this, uh, you know, social agreement from the past for between the past, present and future generations. Cause you're like, it matters so much because this is all we have. This is all we have together. So, yeah. Yeah. What we, what we do here has effects on so many other generations in a way that what you and I do and other people do today is less so. I mean, you and I have to, you know, we have to plan our career so that we can, you know, keep paying the mortgage and pay for food and things, but it's not the, it's not the same choice because I mean, our individual wealth or not wealth 
is going to affect our future grandchildren in some way, but not in the same way that these guys did. You know, whereas if the, the patriarch said, we're going to try a new crop on that part of the field, if that was a success, everyone was a success and might be for generations. Because mm-hmm. they're the ones who got that. And if it was a failure, boy, you're in bad shape. Right, right. So it forces you to take the long view. And yeah, that Burkean continuity of history. It also, I think it's, I mean, it, it, a lot of it depends on your, your worldview. I mean, to some people, this sounds stifling. This sounds like, boy, I don't have any choices. You know, I'm just a little piece of this machine of mankind that's rolling along and I can wiggle a little, but I'm pretty much on the track. But um, we've read a few different authors who talked about the uh, the virtue of that certainty, of that knowing your place in society. And some some people like it um, because it gives you it gives your life a meaning that you can understand. Mm-hmm. So I think for maybe a lot of these people that say, hey, "Here, this is my I'm a father, husband, farmer. This is what I do. Mm-hmm. This is what my father did. This is what my sons are going to do." And you know, for the women, it was the same with their duties. You know, they're mothers and wives and they took care of the farmhouse and did some stuff in the fields and you know it was it was a the same as all their neighbors so it, you know it's it easy to identify who you were it wasn't that anomie that that what am i what am i supposed to do mm-hmm. it's like well you might wonder it but here's what it is and it's the only choice you have so yeah, yeah, yeah. you know i mean there, there was a little good side to that i think to most of us modern people it sounds uh crippling in a way mentally i mean that's that's a great insight a great insight because i probably for i mean this is a this would be a, an empirical question that is conjecture or whatever but I, I feel like for a large portion maybe most of the population that style of living would fit because again like you said it, it gives meaning and you understand who you are in the universe but then we also have, you know, every Disney princess who needs to break out of her <laughs> foreordained future with her family. She doesn't want to be a whatever. She wants to be, you know, a, a special and a princess. And we all have, you know, a lot of us, uh, you know, have that inside too. So again, like this goes back to your good, good point you made, which is, it's just trade-offs. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's having, ha- having the little platoons and the family being the core of it. It, it does give meaning to your life and, you know, this is, this is who I am and this is where I fit. And these are my people who are doing this together rather than atomized marketing um, lifestyle where, you know, you got to go strike it out yourself. <laughs> and, and not only that, we also are judgmental over, you know, kids who live with their parents into their twenties and thirties <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> versus before, you know, that was the full expectation. You better believe you're going to stay here and you know once once you get started you, you know you can have that corner that little corner of our property that you know that's going to be yours for your little family and, and you know and now it's kind of like we put our parents uh, our aging parents in nursing homes or whatever you know they mm-hmm. <laughs> assisted living and then we take our kids and tell them like get out because you know we're here to spend money and consume now and we don't need you around like slowing us down <laughs> yeah this is our time now we're gonna, yeah. we're gonna take a cruise we're gonna go you know go down to florida for a month we need your kids to get out <laughs> yeah it's a totally different situation um so there's a gain and a loss on the one hand yeah 
it's a gain because more, you know, individual freedom. On the other hand, a loss because you're losing those family bonds and, you know, there are obviously still cultures, particularly Asian cultures who are still very family connected and family oriented uh, through generations. They'll have multiple generations living in the same home type of thing. And, um, you know, there's a, certainly there there can be a downside to having your mother-in-law live with you Mm -hmm. your entire life, but there's also an upside, you know, uh, having the other people around that care about you and your kids. And again, like understanding like what we're here for and what we're trying to achieve together. It it definitely makes it different. And one of the things you talked about is how, is that, that, togetherness and having to depend on each other called family security and how it was replaced by social security. You know, one of the ways the government tries to replace that way we all took care of each other is by taking care of, you know, by someone well, not taking care of, but sending money to various members of the now atomized and scattered family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mothers in laws don't come and live with you as much because they have their own social security income now. Well, and there's the trade-off there too, right? Because on the one hand, we'd say, you know, listeners might say, well, are you saying we should get rid of social security? Well, no. I mean, it's a, it was created for a reason. Mm -hmm. You know, you have plenty of aging people who didn't have family to take care of them, let's say, or, you know, for one reason or another, we're just, we don't want to leave those people completely uh, abandoned. On the other hand, there is a loss. Let's just recognize that that there is a a downside, and that is, you know, we feel less obligations to one another. We we feel less obligation to each other through the generations. Where before, and by before we mean for the you know the first hundred thousand years of human existence is like you age as parents. If if you made it to that old, but if you did, then you need someone to take care of you. And of course it's going to be your family. It's not going to be strangers and it's certainly not going to be some broad based social safety net. So, so there's a trade off because I think that's a good thing. I think it would be, I think it's a very good thing to have, you know, children helping to serve their grandparents, you know, and not only being spending their lives being served and catered to, but also recognizing like, no, I I also need to help. And, Mm -hmm. you know, grandma's not doing too well. She can't get up. So I'm going to, I'm going to help her grab the whatever, you know, bring her lunch, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think it's not as destructive as he paints it out to be, especially among poorer families. I think that that social security helps. I think that that's going to help some of the old people who are still living with them to contribute to the family in a way they probably couldn't because they're too old to work. Yeah, that's true. So I I think those checks, I mean, I've, I've known some older people who felt like they had more money than they ever had in their lives when they were retired because they weren't, because <laughs> they didn't have to contribute to raising the kids, but now they could still to the grandkids because they, they had the social security. And, you know, by that point, their own financial obligations are less and the house might be paid off, that sort of thing. So I, I think it, I mean, it's, it's not the same as when we just took care of each other because we were family, but it, I think it, in a way it, that's less destructive than other parts of the welfare state. Um, mm-hmm. Well, and he does mention that, you know, f- he says federal welfare laws subverted the economic integrity of the family. Mm-hmm. And this is something obviously that Murray spent a good bit of time, like showing the data also sh- demonstrating that this in fact is how it's, how it's played out that with federal welfare laws, more generous, let's say social safety net, it gives incentive to fathers in particular to not take care of their children and 
it, it allows them, it just lets them off the hook mm-hmm. because they know that the government's going to step in and the kids are not going to go hungry because there's a wick there, you know, there's TANF. And so it's just, there's strong incentive, you know, before, like I, I need to have these kids cause I need them to take care of me later. You know, we have to, we, this is a, a joint project that we need to work on together versus like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Somebody else will take care of them if I don't. And it creates a huge disincentive to, you know, family formation and responsibility and responsibility to, to your offspring and your family and so forth. Yeah. And it, it, you often hear from the left, the idea that, you know, they'll say to a conservative, Oh, well, you're against abortion, but what do you do for the kids once they're born? Are you, do you support all of these various welfare programs that we love? Cause those things are pro family. Those things are pro life. And I think Carlson gives the, re- the response here that, is lacking in our political system because that question usually just gets brushed off. The response is they support the family only if the family subordinates itself to the state. Right. Right. Yes. All of these things, they, you know, they're giving money to members of the family, you know, children, old people, disabled people, people who can't labor for themselves in the marketplace. But it, the cost is, you know, the government replacing the father, where the historic family was somewhat subordinated to the to the paterfamilias. Mm-hmm. Now it's Uncle Sam, you know, and it, it's so it's it's pro family, but it's pro a different family than anyone's ever known before. It's pro a family that's ordered by government, controlled by government. Mm-hmm. So that's not. It's again, there's there are trade offs, and I think they don't want to recognize that giving out this money from the taxpayer in these different ways has the effects like the effects you're talking about about how it it erodes the family dynamic it erodes the necessity you know i mean yeah you're saying people used to have the kids because they need them need them to work now and need them to support you when you're old but now for uh, the kind of father who's disinclined to support his own kids kids are a hindrance you know there's no joy when he hears his girlfriend's pregnant yep that, oh, that's another, uh, somebody's going to be levying my wages when I don't pay child support. And Oh, great. Now I can't, if I do pay it, well, boy, now I'm worse off. You know, it's, it, it makes these natural acts like reproduction and, and marriage and, and, and things into just, you know, hindrances on the individual life. And we're going to remedy it with some government money, but it, it doesn't reintroduce the responsibility it used to bind us all together and that we'd come to, to love. I mean, people, people love having a nice family, a family that is, is good together and is working correctly. So mm-hmm, it, it, mm-hmm. yeah, all of this, you know, welfare system as the replacement for this, is just stirring the pot and moving things around in weird directions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it solves, uh, as you said before, it solves one problem. We don't want these kids to go hungry you know, mm-hmm. with single moms or whatever. So let's do something about it. But then it has these ramifications that this ripple effect, because yeah, people respond to incentives into, and, yep. and on the one hand, the, the kids get to survive and, you know, hopefully thrive, but, but the fathers, they respond to those incentives and say, hmm, you know what, maybe it's not so important that I, you know, take responsibility or whatever. It's a shame because it obviously is a good 
uh, motivation, right? I mean, nobody wants to see people in want when we can afford not to, especially people like children who didn't do anything to deserve your fate. You're born into one family or another. It's not like, mm-hmm. you know, the kid earned, you know, to live in a big house or to live in on the street, you know, it, it's right. born. So I understand the motivation. Like he talks about early in chapter one, Carlson talks about the parents patriot concept of the, where the government first started getting involved saying kids have to go to school. And, you know, that's, it's our right to say that we can make them go to school. It's the government's right to do this, which was new. You know, mm-hmm. that was, that was new in the 19th century. Used to be, you'd, you'd learn at home. If your parents wanted to send you to a school, they'd, they'd figure it out, you know, if they could afford it. And that comes from a good concept, right? We want kids to be educated, especially in a republic. We want an educated citizenry because they're the one who's going who are going to be running this country someday. Um, but yeah, it's the beginning of getting into who who's in charge of the family anymore. Is it the family itself or is it is it outsiders? And it's a fascinating way of putting it, just the way it stirs things up and changes incentives. Yeah, it strikes us as a universal good that that children would go to school mm-hmm. to learn and you know develop themselves. But there is a, again, there are ramifications. There, there is a, a downside, and that is, he says, it, school reforms cut into the fabric of the family economy, stripping children in large part of their economic value and removing parents from control of upbringing. You mentioned that part. But the, the, but the former part here, these used to be my workers, <laughs> and now they're going to school during the day. <laughs> yep. I, I need them at home to you know fulfill this this work around the house or around the the farm that needs to be done. And today we, we, we can understand that sort of conceptually, but today, I mean, I I knew when, when we lived more inner city and spent more time with, with folks in, in, in different difficult circumstances, we had this one teenage girl that we sort of were, I don't know if you'd call it big brother, big sister to it, but you know, we're helping her a lot and she, she's fantastic. But when she was 15, her mom basically like took her out of school so that she could tend the baby so that her mom could go to work. Mm-hmm. And historically that would have been a no brainer. Like, yeah, you, you don't get to go to school because we've got these other things we need you to do today. It's just appalling. And yeah. <laughs> my wife and I just think, Oh, geez, you're ruining her life. You know, she's gonna have no chance. She can't even go to, she can't even finish junior high and go to high school. That's all true. I think that's all right. But again, there there's a, there's some downside, and as long as we just recognize that what what we're removing from from the family life is, you know, these these social bonds that make you feel needed and wanted and and you know part of something, and and it's not just families teaching values at home, although that is a very important factor that you I think you and I would agree with, but it's it's also Again, this book after book, podcast after podcast after podcast. I mean, what are we, what are we understanding about about social life? Is that you know, there's more, you know, mental illness than there ever has been in the history of the world. Well, and I think a decent part of that is due to the fact that we don't have this meaning. We don't have these these tight knit bonds, and so there is there is a downside. So going to everyone going to school is a universal good. Yes, but there's a downside, you know, there's trade-offs and, and there's a loss and what are we, what are we backfilling it with? Yeah. Nothing's without consequences. I think the big message of this book is 
all these good things are happening since the Industrial Revolution. Everyone's better off for the most part. But that's that for the most part that is um, led to a lot of problems. I think, you know, you have, a, you have a human species that grew up around a certain way of doing things. Thousands of years we've done it. And then you say, we're going to change a whole bunch of these things. And yeah, I think some people can't handle it. I think our brains are, you know, call it natural selection or what have you. Our brains are evolved to the, this family unit, this tribe, this idea. Uh, and now we're, you know, we're being born into a modern world and it's, it's not a natural fit for everyone. And most people can make the adjustment, but I think you're right. I think there's a lot of aimlessness and drifting of spirit among some people because they can't, we're not, we're not made for this. I mean, just look at the pathologies generated by social media. On the one hand, that's gotta be a universal good, right? That we, now we have better access to one another, but we see the cesspool that's created by Twitter, you know, and it's like, there's real serious downsides because we, we were, you know, built to have these small family units and a clan and a tribe, not to know every, you know, to have ourselves deeply invested in, you know, every, every twist and turn of you know, the political arena or things happening thousands and thousands of miles away and having that dictate our lives is sort of thing. Like on the one hand, it's, it's really good that we have access to information. I love mm -hmm. it. I love the internet. Yeah. I don't want to try and give it up, give it back. <laughs> but on the other hand, there's a downside to it. Like, Hey, it's actually degrading social bonds and, and doing it at a, such a rapid clip that we have no idea how to respond to it. And I really wonder 50 years from now, if, sociologists of that time are saying like, Oh yeah, that, you know, between about 2005 and, and, you know, 2030, it was just a complete mess of, you know, people learning how to turn away from the broader scope of social media and turning back to turning back a little bit more inward to community and family and little platoons. I mean, that, that would be, yeah, I think it's the same way you, you when newspapers first started you read about, Oh, there's a famine in another country. People are starving. That's terrible. But if you got wrapped up in it the same way you did for a famine in your own town, you'd never be happy. So I think we learned right. eventually <laughs> to feel bad about injustices around the world and bad conditions around the world, but not to feel them as much as we would feel them in our own town. Because if you, if you ever do, you'll just be bowled over constantly with despair there's always something bad going on. So we, mm -hmm. we learned to compartmentalize and I think we'll eventually evolve <clears throat> socially to match this industrial world we live in. But I, I don't know if we'll see that in our lifetime, but just because things like that change slowly. And I'm not sure what answers Carlson really has. I mean, we, at the end of his book, he talks about that we need strong families <clears throat> led by people of good character, you know, depending on each other, not on the state. Even talked about that property should be distributed more widely, I think, so we can get back to that mm -hmm. sort of land-based yeomanry that the country began with. I'm, I'm just not sure how much of that's possible. We have a much larger population now, and people like living in cities, and a lot of good comes out of people mm -hmm. living in cities. Mm -hmm. 
or working in factories. You know, all many of the goods we have and the things they do for us make our lives easier in so many different ways can't exist in a you know rural, purely dispersed, distributist country. And you need concentrations of, of population and wealth and ideas and, and work to get these things. So I I don't know. He points out the problem very well, and I, I believe what he's saying here. But I'm just this. The answer is sort of like, well, we can try to recreate these old style families in some ways, but the world has changed, and I don't know that. And you can't. Again, there's consequences. To to go back fully to the old ways means abandoning all the other things we've made progress in. Right, right. Well, that's a good closing thought. I think, I think you're right. He's he's laid out what the what the problems are, and asks. I think he's asking all the right questions, and I think it helps us to maybe find us ultimately, maybe hopefully, find a solution just by clarifying the problems, which he's really done for us. I think in a great way here that it's it's not just a culture fight over you know religious f- families versus secular families and you know, what's right and what's, what's morally right and wrong on that front. But rather, this is how the human species evolved and to have these human bonds. And uh, economics was at the center of it. That's not a traditional left-right problem to say, mm-hmm. yeah, we we actually do want some of these things. We do want access to internet and, you know, um, modernity. But on the other hand, it's, it's created these these downsides, these pathologies, and how do we fix that? So, um, you know, he says, let's begin with a focus on personal character. And, and he says, broaden distribution of private property with strong preference for family held and operated enterprises. So I think where his mind, where, where his head is at is kind of like, we need to f- figure out ways to bring the market economy more local back to families and so that we can find ways to work together. And I think that is a great ideal. I'm not entirely sure, you know, to your point, whether that's possible and certainly how to do it without compulsion and, and, you know, great leap forward style Mm -hmm. government, government intervention. It's none of us would support, but all right, that's it for Carlson. Next time we're going to read a book by David Brooks, the New York times columnist, a book called the social animal published in 2011. So catch us then. Thanks.